0: Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. Good morning. Good morning. See, luckily, Byron, he, he recorded those videos ahead of time. Because had he not, then you would know that he actually sprained his ankle at the uh, jumping world yesterday. Uh, And this is not 30 minutes in, this is the very first time that he jumped on the trampoline he sprained his ankle. (laughs) And he blamed it on me, but that's okay, I digress. I'm happy to be with everybody this morning, excited to get back into the book of Romans chapter eight to wrap things up, to pull it all together to look at what Paul has been teaching us and showing us in the book of of Romans. So as we've looked at this book, at this chapter, over the last few weeks, there have been innumerable blessings spoken about for us as believers. You know, we've seen that we're free from condemnation, that that we're free from the power of sin, we've been given the promise that through the Holy Spirit, through the of the Holy Spirit, not only will will we be able to put our sin to death, but also we have a hope, the hope of future glory in resurrection. We've been adopted into the family of God as children, as heirs with Christ. We've learned that in our weakness, that the Holy Spirit actually intercedes for us on our behalf to help us pray when we don't know how. We've seen that no matter what trials, no matter what tragedies or tribulations that we may encounter in this life, that we can have comfort knowing that all things, no matter how tragic or difficult they may be, that they're ultimately working together for our good. We've seen that we are foreknown, predestined, called, justified and glorified. You know, I said a few weeks ago when we first started chapter Eight here in Romans that you know I believe that God was going to reveal to us many gospel blessings in this chapter and I hope that's been true for you I know it's been it's been true for me as we've read through this chapter and something I've noticed something that I found interesting is you know at the end of each of our services, we end with the Aaronic blessing, this blessing from numbers, chapter six, and it begins like this it says. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. And you know, for me, as I, as I read that and as I hear that blessing, that's what I think of when I think of Romans chapter 8. I feel like Romans 8 has really impressed this blessing on my heart, that it's truly one of, it's a passage of great blessing, of assurance, of perseverance, and of peace for the Christian and something you'll notice as we finish chapter 8 today, we're going to see Paul asking his readers a variety of questions. And as we read through them, as we hear these questions, I want you to contemplate them. You know, they're rhetorical, so you don't need to, like, answer them out loud. Just, we'll do, that. We'll do it silently, but I want you to answer these questions. I want you to contemplate them for yourself. But I want you to do it prayerfully. Do it genuinely and consider these questions. And as you do that, my prayer is that with the help of the Holy Spirit that you also would be fully persuaded, convinced, as Paul is, as each of us should be, that no one and no thing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. So we're going to start out with a question, and this is what Paul asks. He says, what then shall we say to these things? Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? There's, the, there's this call from Paul for this internal dialogue to take place. And so he's asking us, what are, we, what are we going to say? How are we going to respond to all of the promises that have been expressed so far in the book of Romans? Not just chapter 8, but all throughout the chapter from the beginning, not just verses that we've looked at, but verse chapter one all the way through chapter eight. He's saying, how are we gonna respond to this book, to my message, to, to what Paul has written about the world's depravity? How are we going to respond to what Paul has written about our justification through faith in Christ, through our sanctification, through the work of the Holy Spirit? How will we respond to this message that we've been set apart for the purposes of God? How are we going to respond? And he answers this first question with another question. And this is a question, this this response that Paul has, this should lift every burden off of your shoulders. It should should provide you with all comfort, all the security, all the, the peace that you need to, as Paul says in a moment, to live your life not as someone who is defeated but rather to live your life as someone who is a conqueror someone who is victorious so Romans 8:31 says this what then shall we say to these things here's the response if god is for us who can be against us if god is for us who can be against us and there's six things that i want you to see not 10 <laughs> the, there's six things that I want you to see that Paul says are benefits that you have as a believer when God is for you. Six benefits when God is on your side. And this is the first one here. If God is for us, who can be against us? So number one, nothing can stand against you. When God is for you, who can possibly stand against you? Your defender, your fortress, your, your advocate is the God of the universe. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint, he does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable, Isaiah 40, verse 28. This is the God that is for you. This is the God that is on your side. But the question here is, Who is it exactly that God is on the side of? This is is an important question that we need to answer, that we need to consider before we continue in this chapter. Who is the us that God is for? Well, these are the the people that Paul mentions just a few verses prior in verses 28 through 30. Look, God is not for everyone. Everyone. And I don't say that flippantly. I know that can be something hard to receive, but look, God is not for everyone. God is for a very particular people. Remember, Paul doesn't, he doesn't say that all things work together for the good of everyone. He categorizes this group. He says all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This is who God is for. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. God is for those people. And so my question this morning as we continue is, are you in that category? Are you in that category of people? Do you love God? Is God your treasure? Do you find your value, your purpose, your meaning, your identity in God? And are you called? Have you been moved from seeing the gospel as foolishness, as Paul says, and instead see it as the power of God unto salvation for all who believe? Have you been called? Can you say with, with Paul that you are not ashamed of the gospel? And if you can say yes and amen to these questions, then God is for you. And all of the blessings, all of the benefits that we've been talking about in Romans 8, should give you great assurance that nothing and no one can stand against you. Now we know that many things in life will come against us. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying that nothing is going to come against you when God is for you. But what he's saying is all those circumstances and difficulties in life may arise. Maybe Satan comes against you or our enemies come against us or maybe sometimes it's even ourselves Our own conscience is against us. He says these things may come against you, but none of them will be successful. None of them can stand against God, and therefore, none of them will ultimately be able to stand against you. The psalmist writes this, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper, I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The Lord is on your side. And if, there's any, if there was any doubt to this claim, if there was any uncertainty around what Paul is saying here, he silences that by what he says next. He says this in the first part of verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So we can know without any doubt, with complete certainty that God is for us because he sent his own son. He sent Jesus. Paul writes in chapter four, verse 25, that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, God gave him up for us. For you and for me. And then he sends the Holy Spirit to testify in our hearts to the love of God for us. So we can see in the death and the resurrection of Jesus that God is for us, and then he sends us the helper, the advocate, the Holy Spirit to testify in our hearts tangibly to remind us of the love of God. So that we can know for sure, without a doubt, that God is for us and that nothing can ultimately stand against us. So number one, if God is for you, then nothing can stand against you. The next thing we see is this, that when God is for you, he gives you everything you need. Listen to the second half of verse 32. It says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's saying this, that God has already performed the greater, the more difficult task of sending his son into the world to die for our sins. You know, we read earlier in chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We see this picture again of moving from something greater to something lesser. It says, much more shall we be saved from his wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God has done the harder part, the more difficult part, out of his love for us, of sending his son to die while we were still in our sins. And so he's saying if he's done that, how could it be possible that he wouldn't give us all of the other blessings that, that go along with it? You can think about it like this. So my family is gonna need a new vehicle here in the next couple of months, right? Like we have two kids now, we just had our, our second child, we had a little girl. So now we have a four-year-old boy named Owen and we have a six-week-old daughter named Kuiper, Right? So we're gonna need to get a new vehicle in the next couple of months because I drive a Fiat 500. If you know what a Fiat is, it's a little two-door, tiny car. It fits in between the parking spots where other people have already parked. (laughs) And it's not exactly a family car, right? And so, funny story, I actually, when I used to pick up Owen from daycare, when he was an infant, had the infant carrier, it was actually easier for me to put him in the car through the hatch into the back seat than it was for me to put him in through one of the doors. So you can imagine this picture of all the daycare moms as I open the trunk of my car and put my son in and then <laughs> close the hatch behind him, right? So at any rate, I need to get a new car. The Fiat, I could barely hold my own son and a bag of groceries, much less two kids now. So think of it, think of it like this. This, this idea of God having given us all that we need, and so he's going to give us everything else, right? So imagine I get home in just a couple of months so I need this new car, and Courtney has in the driveway waiting for me the brand-new 2020 Toyota Tacoma in the TRD off-road trim, cement gray. <laughs> double cab. All right. So I come home, and this, this brand-new truck... Is sitting in the driveway, and I'm so excited. I finally got my new vehicle, and I, and I get in, and I put my foot on the brake. And there's a button to press to start it. Instead of trying to find my key, and it doesn't start. And I, I ask Courtney, "I'm like, hey, what's you know about the new truck? What's going on?" She says, "Oh, well, I got the truck, but those key fobs—they're like $250. So I just got you the truck, but I, I didn't get you the, the key fob for it." I mean, it wouldn't make any sense, right? Like, we've done the hard part. Like, we got the vehicle. Why wouldn't you give me the key to start the car, right? So God, he withholds nothing from you. He's done the hard part. He's done the greater part. So everything else he's going to give you. You're his child. You're an heir with Christ. All that belongs to Jesus, this is what this means to be an heir. All that belongs to Jesus now belongs to you, because you have been adopted into the family of God. Think about it. Jesus doesn't have anything that you are not going to have. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The one who has called you has given you everything that you need in this life to fulfill the purpose that he has called you for. So what is that purpose? What is the the purpose of our calling? Well, Paul answers this as well. And it's important that we answer this this question because all things does not mean an escape from all things. You see, Jesus promised his disciples, and and that means he promised us that, that in this life we're going to have trouble. John chapter 16, verse 33 and, and he says just a moment ago in, in Romans 8 that we were predestined for a reason. He says this, that we were pre, uh, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So there's our purpose. There's the purpose of our calling is to be transformed more and more to look like Jesus. And so Paul, he's saying that God has given us everything we need to look more and more like Jesus in this life so that it would result in us being glorified with him in the next one. One of my favorite musical artists, they say it like this, someday soon we shall put on the sun. Not the one we see that's just a sketch of what's to come. That one day we are going to be glorified with Christ, that we are gonna put on Christ's glory God has given us all the things that we need, everything that we need to be certain, to guarantee, to make sure that we will reach that destination. He's given us all things. Paul is so certain that this is going to take place that he speaks of our glorification in verse 30 as if it's already taken place, as if we are already glorified. So when God is for you, he will give you everything that you need. The next thing we see is this, that when God is for you, he is your defender. Romans 8, verse 33 says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, against God's chosen people? It is God who justifies. So I said at the beginning that as we ask these questions, I want you to contemplate them, I want you to to think about these questions and wrestle with what Paul is asking us. So who is it that brings accusations against you? I'll let you think about that for a second. Who is it that accuses you? Is it Satan? Is it your enemies? Is it your own conscience? You know, we read in Revelation chapter 12 that Satan, see, he's called the accuser, and it says that he brings accusations against the brethren all night and all day long before God, that he is accusing you before God. But, in the atonement, in what Jesus accomplished on the cross, all the demands of justice, all the demands that God had for us have been met in Jesus so that no legal charges can be brought against us. We cannot any longer be charged for our sin. All of our past sins, anything you've done in the past... Anything in the present, anything in the future, it has all been paid for so that there is no longer any penalty in the courtroom of heaven. All guilt, every penalty paid for by the blood of Jesus. You see, if you keep reading in Revelation chapter 12, it actually says that Satan has been thrown down and conquered by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. That the accuser has been thrown down and overcome. But maybe it's your conscience, maybe it's enemies that accuse you, maybe it's past sin that they accuse you of, the way that you used to live, that they bring back up now that you're a Christian, and they say, yeah, I remember who you used to be, I remember how you used to live, Are you re- so you're a Christian now? Or maybe it's yourself and it's a current sin, something that you're struggling and, and, and wrestling with, and your conscience is accusing you. This is what the author of Hebrews writes, he says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins No more. You know, sometimes these accusations are not, not always from the enemy. Sometimes we just simply forget to rest in what Jesus has accomplished for us. Sometimes we, we forget, but here we're reminded that our sins are no longer considered against us, that they've been forgiven. That when God looks at you, he sees only Jesus, and he only sees his finished work on the cross in your place. You think of this, think of the picture of, of a courtroom, right? This is what we're envisioning here. And God is our, he's the judge, right? But this is the highest authority, the most powerful judge in the highest courtroom, and he's proclaimed you not guilty. And so if, if the highest authority he's acquitted you, then who could possibly bring a charge against you? Think about it, we actually had, the highest guilt before God because he had the highest demand on us and he forgave us. So what else could possibly stand against us? We are justified, made righteous before God. But we, we still sin. As long as we're in this body, we're still going to sin. Paul reminds us of that over and over here in the book of Romans that we need to be killing our sin, that we need to be putting to death the deeds of the body, but listen to what he writes to the church in Corinth, he says, for our sake he made him to be sin, that's Christ, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That legal demand was met in Jesus so that we could receive his righteousness. So Christ, he dies to sin, we die with Christ, and so now we are free. No legal demands, no penalty to be paid, we are free from any and all condemnation. Which leads us to number four, which is, when God is for you, not only is he your defender, but he is also your liberator. He's not only your defender, but he's also your liberator. Romans eight, verse 34 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, Who indeed is interceding for us. So think about it. Who is it that condemns you? Jesus has been condemned in our place, and he received the penalty for our sins. The condemnation has been taken care of in him. There's no one else to condemn you, and there's no penalty to be paid or debt owed. We've been liberated. So, who is it that condemns you? Who is it that criticizes you? Because we're no longer condemned. We have a liberator. Paul puts it this way in Colossians. He says, And you, that's us, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. And listen to this. He canceled the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, he nailed it to the cross, and when he did that, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So your guilt, your shame, your condemnation, here it is, and it's nailed to Jesus, dealt with in his body on the cross. All the, the righteous requirements, of God that needed to be met, fulfilled in his broken body and shed blood. Our sin, our shame, condemnation nailed into the hands and feet of Jesus, so that instead of nails in our hands, rather we receive a crown of righteousness. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We've been made righteous in Christ. And Paul's talked about this already. If you, if you remember back in the beginning of Romans chapter eight, right? Romans chapter eight, verse one, he says this, that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. So we're seeing this picture again that Christ comes into this world. He dies for our sin. And when he does, our sin is condemned in him. And it says, verse four, that in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So understand this. Our sin, our shame is taken care of. It's taken care of in Christ on the cross. But Paul says not only is there there no condemnation left, but he says more than that, that Jesus has been raised, securing and guaranteeing our own resurrection. And he says that right now in this moment that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Right now in this very moment that Jesus is mindful of each and every person whom he calls his own and he is interceding for them before the Father. See, a moment ago I said that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sinfulness anymore. And we know that that's not completely true, right? Like God didn't just like, forget like, what our sin is, right? He knows our, our sin and he sees our sin, but what this is saying is that although he still sees our sin, we have an advocate that stands between us and the Father and Jesus, who when he sees our sin, Jesus says, not guilty, I've taken care of that. That's what it means to have this advocate before the Father. He's declaring before God that we're free of condemnation because of what he accomplished on the cross. This is what John writes in 1 John 2, 1, that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is praying for you right now. Jesus is praying for you in this very moment, standing before the Father and saying, you are righteous. And he's praying for you individually, specifically, not for everyone. He's praying for you. Think back in in John chapter 17, right? This is the high priestly prayer. This is the night before Jesus is going to be crucified before he's arrested. And he's with his disciples and he's praying for them. And he says this, he says, I'm praying for them specifically, particularly. I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. If you are Jesus's, if you are his, he prays for you specifically and particularly. He's interceding for you. He knows each and every person who is His because you've been called by Him. And consequently, the author of Hebrews writes that He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Think about that. He always lives to make intercession for them. Right now, in this moment, always, forever, Jesus will be standing between you and the Father, mediating, advocating for you, declaring your righteousness, no matter sin's past, present, or future. So he's your liberator. The other thing we see is this, that he is your security, that if God is for you, he is your security, that you are secure in him. So Romans chapter eight, verse 35 through 37. Paul asked the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Or I could continue and I could go on. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So in God, when God is for us, we have everything that we need in this life. Nothing can stand against us. We have a defender. We have a liberator. And Paul's going to show us, he's gonna explain to us now that not only is he those things for us, but he's going to address whether or not there's something in this life, if there's anything or anyone in this life that could actually separate us from the love that Jesus has for us. Is there a circumstance or a hardship that we could experience that could cause us to be separated from God's love in Christ? And just like earlier, when we asked rhetorically if there's anything that can stand against us, the answer, of course, is no. The same answer is here, that no, there's nothing that could separate us from the love of God in Christ. But again, as we contemplate this question, I want you to think for just a moment, what are the sufferings that lead you to believe that you can, in fact, be separated from God's love? What are the sufferings, the trials, the experiences that you have, that you may be going through right now that cause you to question whether or not you are actually still in God's love? Look at Paul's list. He says, tribulations. So is there a trial? Is there a tragedy that you're you're dealing with right now? Is there distress? Is there anxiety? Anxiousness? Persecution for your faith, for what you believe? Is it famine or nakedness? Are you struggling? Could Could it be poverty that you're struggling with? Danger or sword? Is it possible that any of these things that we experience could separate us from God's love? And you could say to me this, you could say, look, Brandon, I know you've, you've read this list, but you really don't understand you know, what I'm actually going through at the moment. I, you know, I get your list, but, but you haven't really covered what I'm dealing with right now. You know, you've never had the, the crippling anxiety that I have. You've never, you never truly suffered the persecution that I'm dealing with, or have you really gone without food or experienced this shame of nakedness or feared for your life? And some of that, that very well may be true, but I can tell you confidently this, that no matter how terrible a situation that you may be experiencing, you cannot be separated from God's love because Jesus has experienced every single one of those things, and he cannot be separated from the love of God. And I want you to think about this as well. Listen, if you're, if you're dealing with something in this moment, if you're walking through one of these things that we're, that we're talking about, it does not mean that you've done anything wrong. It doesn't mean that you've done something to deserve what's happening to you. Listen, Jesus was innocent. He had no sin, and yet he suffered. No sin, and yet he still suffered. We may may suffer in this life in such a way that we cannot understand why it's happening, but here's the hope that a Christian has. God will use our suffering to produce hope in us that will not disappoint. He's gonna use our suffering for our own good. Who else can say that? that our suffering is actually gonna work out for our benefit, for our good. And so rather than believe this lie, which it is a lie that God does not love you because you're suffering, as Christians, rather, we should rejoice in our suffering and we should be more keenly, more acutely aware of God's love for us all the more during our trials because we have the Holy Spirit testifying in our hearts in those moments that God loves us. Earlier in Romans chapter five, Paul writes that not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That when we deal with trials and suffering, the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that God loves you that he cares for you, that he's actually working all of this suffering into good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And he's going to use these sufferings to conform us to look more and more like Jesus so that not only in this life will we look more and more like him but that we will share in his glory in the next. That's what the Holy Spirit produces in us, this hope of a future glory during our suffering. And this is, this It should compel us to long for the return of Jesus. This is when the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf, as as, uh, Ethan preached on last week, earlier in Romans chapter eight, that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf during these times when we don't know how to pray, when we don't have the words to express our pain and our anxieties and our frustrations, but God, he knows them, And so he's saying, cry out to me, call on me, cast your fears upon me. Look, I know you don't have the words to say, and it's okay. I just need you to say, Abba, Father. And he hears you, and he sees you, and he knows you, and he will be your security. John Piper says this about this passage. He says, this omnipotent, effective, protecting love, it does not spare us from calamities in this life, but rather brings us safely through them to everlasting joy with God. This is why Paul can say that we are more than conquerors, that we are victorious. And notice this, he doesn't say that, well, someday in the future, maybe after this suffering is over and I've I've gone through all these trials and tribulations and now that they're in the past, well, that day I will become a conqueror. But he says, now, in this moment, we are more than conquerors, amen? And in this moment, during the suffering, during the trials, we are more than conquerors. Which is to say that this is an identity. This is is a way that we live. It's how we approach every day, no matter the situation. And look, it's not naivety, right? This isn't an attitude that disregards suffering. It isn't an attitude that, you know, pretends that suffering's not real, that it doesn't exist. We recognize it and we, we feel it and we know that it's real, but we also know that there is something far greater that awaits us. And so you have a hope like no one else in this life has. You cannot be accused, you cannot be condemned, you cannot be separated from God's love, and you cannot be conquered by anything or anyone in this life because it's through him and his love for us that we overcome. So think about this for a second as well. Have you ever convinced yourself of something? Have you ever convinced yourself of something so much that you were so totally confident so certain that it was true, confident enough that you could stand up, you could raise your hand, you could speak about it in the first person and say that I know this to be true. That's what Paul is going to do here in a moment. He's going he's to switch his, his tone. You know, when I was in elementary school in third grade, I had a, my third grade teacher name was Mrs. Cook, my favorite grade school teacher. She actually, she still comes into my work sometimes and I'll see her and we'll catch up and we'll talk for a few minutes but she was my favorite teacher in all of grade school. And one day we're in her class and we're talking about the Titanic. Okay, this is third grade Brandon, right? Now, third grade Brandon loved the story of the Titanic. I don't know why, but I did. And this was, this was still like a few years before the documentary film came out by James Cameron. But I remember we're, we're talking about Titanic one day, Mrs. Cook's third grade class, and she asks, who in here knows how the Titanic sank? And of course, I, I love the Titanic and so I knew exactly how the Titanic sank. And I was so confident, I was so certain, I was so sure that I raised my hand and I stood up. said, Mrs. Cook, I know how the Titanic sank. She says, well, Brandon, why don't you tell us, tell the class how the Titanic sank. And I said, well, Mrs. Cook, you see, what had happened was the water, it was so cold that it froze the Titanic and it broke in half and sank. (laughs) To which Aaron Hinton quickly replied, no, it hit an iceberg. (laughs) And all of my, all my confidence was immediately gone in that moment. But I was certain, I was sure. Look, Paul is certain. Paul is sure of something. He's so certain, he's so sure that he's going to raise his hand, he's going to change his tone from asking questions to speaking now in the first person. Now he's speaking for himself. He's convinced himself. He's persuaded now of what he's been talking about in the book of, of Romans. He's totally convinced, persuaded, sure, certain. And this is what he says after pushing and prodding us to ponder these questions about our security. He speaks for himself and says this in verse 38 that I am sure, certain, convinced, persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verses 38 and 39, which is our last point, number six, that when God is for you, you have his love. When God is for you, you have his love his love. And really, you know, we could have continued to to look at this last couple of verses through that same lens of security, that we have security in Christ. But I wanted to look closer at, you know, what exactly is it that's securing us? What exactly is it that provides that security? And what that thing is is God's love for you in Christ. That's what secures you. And there's so many things that we could Talk about in regard to God's love for us, what it compels Him to do, what it means for us. I'm just gonna list a few. God's love for you, it sent Jesus to the cross. John three, sixteen, Romans five, eight. God's love for you invites us into his family. First John three: one. It's God's love that casts out all fear, all anxiety. First John four eighteen. God's love gives us life. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. God's love is seen perfectly manifest in the person and the work of Jesus. First John 4, 9 through 10, Galatians 2, 20, John 15, 13. I could keep going. And it's God's love ultimately that is going to keep you. Romans 838 and 39. There's a hymn that I want us to look at in just a moment. And this one's interesting to me, not just because the the words are so profound, but it's interesting also because this one was actually written in the 1900s, right? So when we think of hymns, we're like, oh, that hymn from like the first century AD that they sing in the Baptist churches. This hymn was actually written in the 1900s, but it stood the test of time with all other great hymns. And it's called The Love of God, very simple name, right? The Love of God, it's by a man named Frederick Lehman. In this last stanza, this last verse, he's singing, he's writing about God's love, he's writing about its depth, he's writing about the expanse, he's writing about the unending reach of God's love. And this is what he says. He says, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. There is absolutely nothing that will be able to stand between you and God's love for you. Absolutely nothing will be able to stop God's love from reaching you. It will cover the highest mountains. It will march through the deepest valley. There is no calamity of human existence. There is nothing that this life has to offer you. There is no spiritual or earthly power, there is nothing in your past, there is nothing in your future, there is no amount of distance. And just in case there's something else that you could think of, Paul says that there is nothing in no one or anything in all of creation, that means everything, that could separate you from God's love. You are secure in Christ forever. You are secure in Christ eternally And there's just one thing that I, that I want to close with, something I want to leave you with, something practical. Something that seems so simple but it's sometimes so difficult. There's one other implication of God's love for us and that is this, that it's God's love that compels us to love others. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You are secure in God's love. No one can stand against you. No charge can be proclaimed against you. No condemnation can be laid upon you. No one and nothing can separate you from God's love, so why don't you share that with somebody else? Why don't you share this good news of God's love on the cross for your sins with somebody? You know, I asked two questions earlier when I mentioned there's a certain category of people that this is all about, right? Like God is for certain people. God is not for everyone. And it depends on how you answer these two questions as to whether or not God is for you or whether or not God is on your side. And those questions were, do you love God? And are you called according to his purpose. Well, here's a litmus test that John gives us in chapter four. He says, look, if you know God, if you've been born of God, that means if you are called, then you're gonna love one another. That love is the ultimate test of whether or not you belong to God's family. And so if, you've, if you love God and you've been called, then you ought to love one another.